Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual arts. Nava in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts. I'd like to start by acknowledging this conversation is recorded on the ancestral stolen land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And as a visitor, I pay my respect to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging. The Gadigal people are the traditional owners and knowledge holders of this land. And I acknowledge the people of the wider Eora Nation as the first to resist and survive colonization and whose culture and customs have nurtured and continue to nurture the land on which I live, learn and work. Welcome to NAVA in Conversation. Um, my name is Leah Reid and I am NAVA's Communications and Advocacy Manager. For those of you who are perhaps unfamiliar with my voice, I have actually uh, indeed only recently joined NAVA back in March this year, which to say the very least was most certainly an interesting and um, unusual time to join a new workplace, making today my very first time hosting a NAVA in Conversation podcast. And I am absolutely thrilled uh, to be joined by our guest, curator and arts writer, Sophia Tsai. Sophia, where are you joining us from today? Thank you so much for having me. So I am speaking from Melbourne. I'd also like to do an acknowledgement. I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri and Bunurwurrung people of the East Kulin Nations. I am an uninvited guest on their land. I would like to um, pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. So, I mean, I didn't know this was your first episode. <laughs> I'm very yeah. thrilled to be your first guest. Yes, I'm thrilled that you're my first guest as well. Sophia, I guess I'd love to hear more about yourself. Um, obviously, I've read your bio, but yeah, please tell me about yourself and your practice, what you've been busy with. So, uh, I would describe myself as a curator and writer. I am really interested in ideas and working with artists and I mostly work in terms of um, a lot of my work is to do with arts writing. I also really enjoy putting together exhibitions and public programs but at the moment I'm sort of working in a freelance capacity which is a decision I actually made at the end of last year. So like you to kind of enter 2020 with a kind of new set of working uh, <laughs> conditions has been quite challenging but I've also recently started uh, teaching as a sessional tutor at the University of Melbourne in the School of Art, which has also been a really interesting experience for me to kind of think about some of the themes and ideas in my work through a perspective more in terms of engaging with students. I think, I guess a good summary of what I do is just that I like to read and write and think and make and all of those things sort of become muddled together under the banner of what I do. I still don't really think my parents know what I do, but um, sometimes, <laughs> I, sometimes I don't know either. That's um, a great bio. <laughs> what are you teaching? So I'm actually, I mean, I'm not trained as an artist, so I have a background in art history. So the only thing I feel like I can really teach in an art school is theory. So I'm teaching in the art theory department, which actually just means reading a lot about ideas about art and talking about artists, which is what I love doing anyway. Yeah, it's been a good, that's been quite, quite a fun experience, but of course, um, you know, education has been one of the sectors that's been really hard 
hit really hard by the pandemic. It's also been kind of a challenging space to navigate and I think it's very hard for students and for staff. I mean, a lot of the things that we talk about in the classroom, you know, it's about uh, critical theory, it's about philosophy, it's about social studies. All of these things are not just contained within the classroom setting. It's like happening right now. And it's quite, I guess, I guess I'm trying to think about how to apply, I guess the relationship I have with academia, it's, it's a bit funny too because I also feel like I want it to become discourse that can extend outside of those walls so how to turn that into I guess actions if you're an artist or so forth. That's really interesting you mentioned when uh, you were describing uh, yourself that you would call yourself a curator and arts writer and I saw on um, the internet that on your website that you are particularly interested in community-based practices what does community care mean to you and uh, how does it influence your practice mm. and curating? Yeah, great question. I've been thinking a lot more also about how for me my work is like an ongoing process of learning as well. So in terms of what that means in terms of community and my work, I think being a curator, the way that I was taught or the way that I was kind of made to think about curatorial practice, I guess, through my education or in the earlier parts of my career, was so much connected to institutional values. And, you know, for a long time, what I wanted to be was to be somebody who followed that path, I guess. And now my thinking has really shifted. And I think about curatorial practice more as an active thing rather than just rather than maybe connected to any particular institution. And it's more for me, what's more important is the relationships. I know that sounds really abstract, but I guess for me, it's about, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a part of my work that's about advocacy and amplification and thinking in particular about the communities that I'm part of. So like for me, that might be, um, you know, supporting other artists of colour or supporting other women of colour. Like that's the kind of community that I'm part of and that I kind of want to... Um, want to locate my work increasingly more within, I guess. So for me, it also means thinking about audience. So I think we often think about an arts audience or, you know, when we make an exhibition or something, we might have an idea of this general audience. And I've been thinking a bit more about how maybe that neutrality has always assumed a white gaze. I mean, I can talk about this more with some of my upcoming projects, but some of that has also been about taking back that agency and thinking about who is this project for? And maybe selfishly, some of my work is like for a younger Sophia, you know, like <laughs> for a past Sophia that didn't know or didn't have the confidence to kind of think about these things in a really critical way, like race and gender and so forth. So I guess for me, community is an ongoing set of values rather than any specific kind of description, if that makes sense. And it's probably something that I will keep on grappling with in terms of the audience for my work and also who I want to make my work about or for. That's so interesting. It seems in your curatorial practice that you're sort of merging the communities that you uh, seek to like engage perhaps maybe represent in a very loose term and your audiences, but, um, also um, perhaps the artists that you engage to do the work so it's it's multi-layered really yeah it's, I think it and like I said I think it's a process of I'm still kind of working it out I feel like I've been sort of working in a curatorial and writing capacity for a few years now but my thinking about what that means is growing and shifting and changing so yeah it's a really good question because I think I'm still kind of working that out yeah. as well um, but there is a kind of freedom I suppose in maintaining some aspects of being independent because I do have sometimes the luxury of 
not maybe not luxury. I have the element of choice of being able to decide or being able to be, I mean, self-directed in a lot of my work, which gives me a lot of value. Oh, that's amazing. Um, it sounds, even though, um, you know, you've recently done a lot of freelance, but um, it sounds like you're, you're still finding that you're, you're doing quite a lot of work. I mean, we were speaking earlier via email and you mentioned that you've got multiple deadlines coming up. And uh, I know that working the, working in the arts can be often very uh, incredibly challenging. Mm. And there's things like creative burnout, uh, fatigue, the balancing act of having um, different jobs, precarity, of course. Um, I guess my next question I'd love to ask is what nourishes or sustains you? That's such a good question. And I think it's quite hard to answer. I've been having this conversation with burnout with a few of my peers who, like me, I think have now maybe been in the industry a bit like long enough to kind of have seen a lot of that exploitation and um, that kind of endless work ethic and grind. Actually, I might speak to, I wrote an article um, earlier this year for Art Guide called Burnt Out Culture. That was sort of a reflection on particularly creative burnout within the arts and this idea of this kind of exploitation of the self that we do because we are so emotionally invested in our work that it becomes very hard to kind of say no, I guess. And also we blame ourselves if things don't work out or something like that because of that kind of, but then I, in the article, I kind of spoke about it, not that, not as something we should put the blame on, on us, but really recognizing that, you know, we're working within a structure that doesn't really value creative labor enough. And I kind of wrote that thinking about, once again, Sophia, you should listen to your own advice <laughs> um, and say no more. That, that's really the solution, I think, in terms of sustaining yourself. Um, in terms of your question about nourishing, and I'm very lucky to live like a partner who I love very much and two amazing greyhounds. Yeah, so I have like my family and they ground me, you know, and they make me feel seen in a way that isn't linked to my output. And I think that's something that's shifted in my thinking where my value, like while I can be proud of the work that I do and you know really put a lot of care into what I put out into the world in that respect my value as a person does not stem from that either and that maybe is a reminder for myself on days when I do feel that kind of endless kind of grind or the fatigue and it's so incredibly difficult for artists or freelance workers to sort of you know just just to um, make ends meet I guess and that's why we often are in these positions where it's hard to say no. Yeah, it's very difficult to say no, but very important, mm. especially saying no to unpaid work where you're being paid in the dirty word of exposure. So I was saying to my partner the other day, I was saying to him, the only way I think we can really address inequity in the arts is to actually just have a basic universal income. Because Oh, like, interesting. And maybe my work actually needs to be, actually, I'd love to talk to you more about this since this seems to be some of work that you're working in as well. But I think we maybe we focus so much on the output aspect of you know creative practice we don't actually think about things that are necessary for that kind of thrive and survive you know yeah totally we don't have an official um position on the universal basic <laughs> income but it is something that we have been discussing a lot recently yeah. because there are lots of people in the arts that do support it i obviously have my personal opinions about it it does seem like a very good step in terms of addressing the impacts of covid19 and other yeah. emergencies which is obviously mostly uh, having the one of the biggest impacts on artists that we've seen in a long time but I will just stress back to some of the topics we were talking about and this is some a question that came up when I was reading a lot of your work was that 
I believe that cultural safety is something that's closely connected to health and well-being. Mm-hmm. And I do understand that you're currently working on a second reiteration of a group exhibition that you originally curated in 2018 called Disobedient Daughters. And in relation to this project about to launch, well, I guess in 2021, what, what are the kinds of conversations that are being had uh, around cultural safety in the communities that you work and engage with? Yeah, I think that's such a like tricky question as well, because what might be cultural safety to one person might not be the same to another. I think about this in terms of what kind of values or working kind of relationships I can maintain. There's this kind of power dynamic between artists and curators, inevitably, because you are working in a capacity where you are Also, curating is also a form of gatekeeping as well in terms of who is shown and who is not shown. The visibility, the politics of that, it's, you know, it's really deeply ingrained in, I guess, that um, as a kind of form of work. But in terms of cultural safety, I think for me, it comes down to agency and it comes down to offering artists or those that I work with the platform slash space to really show up for their full selves or whatever they want to be. The way I work, Sometimes I feel like I don't really give people that many directions. It's more like this is a framework. How do you want to respond within that? And I'm also really aware that I am limited in terms of my lived experience. So I cannot, you know, I will not be able to know what somebody else's sort of, I guess, what somebody else's experience might be or what their notions of cultural safety might be. But speaking to Disobedient Daughters, so in 2018, this was a group show that I curated in Brisbane at Metro Art. Basically, it was looking at stereotypical images of Asian women in a global context. A lot of photo media and video and photography works predominantly. For the second iteration in 2021, I kind of see it not as the same show, but as almost like a continuation of that same thinking. And the, the main shift with this I guess, iteration is that there's a publication outcome. So as part of that, I've invited 10 writers to respond directly to the artists in the show. So it's kind of like pairing them up one by one. And the brief was very open. You know, it was like, you don't have to write a curatorial text. You don't even have to write about the work. I want your voice in it. And I try to think about like, potential kind of connections, I guess, between writers and artists, but also really wanting to leave that up to to interpretation and I'm in the process now of editing them which is why I've been saying to you I have a lot of uh, work on my plate (laughs) Um, and it's been really it's been really wonderful to see the responses that have come in I'm really blown away by the diversity of kind of I guess the format like there's you know poems and like personal essays but also like I guess more like and I think I think for me what's more important is that if I'm working like in collaboration with an artist or a writer that they feel like they can really do what they want within this within the kind of project space I guess and maybe that's a way of kind of ensuring cultural safety but also maybe having clear boundaries about what's acceptable and what's not but I feel like at this point people are pretty people who hire me sort of know what I'm about so maybe you know I guess I'm quite firm with my values I try to be and I and I try to put that care into my work but whether that's always a success or not you know is up for debate but it's an ongoing process yeah totally I think it's it's really important um but in a very interesting conversation because I feel like best practice around cultural safety there hasn't been enough research into it so there's no way of really determining the best approach to it do you know if these sorts of conversations are happening in I guess the curator community that 
that you engage with? Do you know that other, if other people are having these conversations and if they talk about um, the different approaches that they work with? Yeah, I think so. I think working as a person of colour in the arts in Australia, there's kind of two things that you're dealing with at once. On one hand, there is the kind of the work that does nourish me, which is sort of the solidarity with your peers. And then, you know, making a project like Disobedient Daughters is very much kind of a like led by, you know, our community, I guess. And it's about that. And then on the other hand, there is the kind of grappling with institutional powers or with whiteness or whatever you want to call it or the status quo. Or So there, I think the, the way that we practice cultural safety might is going to look different depending on which context you're working in and who you're working with. And I think it's completely fine for, I don't know, I think the conversation is very nuanced because there's also things like, you know, lateral violence and things like that that can happen within communities as well. So sometimes, I'm not really sure I'm going with this. <laughs> I guess my answer to your question is, yeah, you're right. It's, complete, it's very nuanced. There's no, it's kind of like anti-racism work. There isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. And maybe the way we think about it is that the multitude of approaches are different ways to tackle this one thing. Um, yeah, and I kind of am very conscious about how, yeah, how my goals might be different or how, how I might center or decenter certain kind of values or voices from my work, depending on, you know, trying to match to those goals, I guess. Yeah, totally. Um, well, I guess it's, it's such an important conversation um, to have and hopefully to spark a whole, a whole bunch of new conversations around this. And hopefully um, we will see a lot more research into it so that we can, um, for example, NAVA can um, look into having that sort of, those sort of examples of these approaches in our code of practice as just one example. And I guess now that we are talking about anti-racism in the arts, um, I do sort of want to flip it because we, we do often, when we talk about anti-racism, we focus on topics such as cultural diversity, identity, and we very rarely discuss the importance of joy in our work, mm. um, something that I am personally very guilty of myself. So Sophia, I'd, I'd love to know, how do you infuse your creative practice with what makes you happy? Thank you for like putting this question in. I feel like even the fact that we sort of talked about this, you know, in our initial exchange and we both kind of felt like, oh, you know, it'd be really nice to flip that conversation because so often, yeah, it is framed around trauma or it's framed around identity or these things that are very important and valid. But if that's all we see, you know, it's, it's really heavy, I think, on the people who I guess doing that work to kind of continuously perform that in a way. So thank you for like hearing me and putting this question in because I think this is a really important part of the anti-racism work that, I mean, I guess the thing is, it's interesting because I feel like when people think about my work, they don't really know where to put me because I do do shows like Disobedient Daughters and then I do a show about dog and then I do a show about kind of artistic labor and money and then I do a show about BTS. But to me, that seems to be a genuine way in which I kind of make sense of the world or ideas through art, I guess. And I think also, I know the way, I feel like the way we talk about race in the arts in Australia, it's still so often centered on this idea of diversity. And I think that word or, or this idea of representation, and I think those words on their own don't really do enough because it is sort of, it's kind of basically boxing you in or putting you in a place as you are this diverse thing or this diverse person rather sorry yeah. <laughs> so 
I've been trying to think more about how, you know, I can find joy in my work. And that might mean leaning into my nerdy hobbies, leaning into kind of non-arts spaces as well, like fandom, or I also knit a lot. So like knitting, kind of just bringing all of that into, yeah, into, into my work. So I guess in terms of what makes me happy, it changes because it's a constantly evolving kind of set of interests. I think I have quite an obsessive personality and I kind of joke to people that like once I'm into something, two years later, there'll be a show about it. And actually so far it's happened. I adopted a dog and then a year later, Kathleen Lynn and I curated a show about dogs. I I actually do want to hear more about this dog show. It was fantastic. It was called Every Dog Will Have Its Day. It was at Katsula Powerhouse in 2017, I think. Yeah. And it was really fun to work on that show with Kathleen, who's a dear friend of mine, but also we wanted to kind of collaborate together. And what I remember about that was also the opening and the public programs. Like we had a dog friendly opening. So the oh artists my gosh. who had dogs brought them to the opening. There was like a the gallery decided to have a hot dog stand, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> funny vegan hot dogs. Oh, okay. Um, I was a bit cannibalistic. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I just remember one of the funniest things I had to do so far in my curatorial career is like write a list of like guidelines for dogs entering the gallery. What so, are like, the guidelines? So the dogs had to be on, like if, it, if you were in the gallery, like not outside the building, but like in the building, um, only five dogs at a time and they had to be on leashes and you had to clean up after your dog which I thought was very reasonable like any dog owner would like be okay with that yeah Um, general guidelines for how to own a dog (laughs) yeah yeah so that was a really fun show and then recently I've been like obsessed like obsessed with this um, k-pop group called bts yeah um, I recently curated a show that took a song of theirs as the title inspiration and kind of explored themes to do with more maybe a more optimistic kind of um, exhibition in terms of thinking about lockdown and time and like what do we want in a future that hasn't come yet you know so yeah I think that's been one way that I've been able to sort of try and sustain some of that joy because I think the anti-racism work while really important it has also brought up a lot of traumas and triggers for me and it's also hard to grapple with I guess not wanting to put yourself into a, a label or a box so I really admire like I'm, I'm always really happy when people reach out to me to work with me in any capacity but I do want to I guess think more now about what kind of work I'm doing and whether it's helpful for either myself or for like you know the work I want to do or whether it's going to change something or you know I guess thinking about that a bit more critically as well. Yeah, totally. I think as well when people, you know, want to hire you and they see that you're not white, there's almost an expectation that you are going to bring your commentary on culture or race or structures and that sort of thing. And it's very rarely are you asked to just bring your opinions, your interests, um, your quirks, all the things that make you unique, not just perhaps where your parents were born or whatever reason. So I think that's absolutely lovely that you, that what makes you happy is working on projects that don't necessarily have to relate to anti-racism, but in a way, I guess, making its own comment on that. Yeah. And I guess the way I actually had a conversation this week with my students about a similar kind of topic, because we were talking about this week's class was sort of actually very timely. This week's class was, um, 
delivered by Andy Butler, and he spoke about, you know, institutional whiteness, you know, change within a kind of, I guess, museums and galleries. And, you know, my, my, with my students, especially when I speak to my white students, I was like, so, you know, what does this mean for you as an artist? Like, how do you carry this work in your practice and there and you know a lot of my students were white were saying like you know I can't make work about these things these are not my lived experiences I'm like yes absolutely you don't have to make work about it but it can be the, the values that inform the way you make your work so if you're in an exhibition space have a look at who else is exhibiting alongside you or you know if you're offered an opportunity think about who is not offered an opportunity so I think for me the anti-racism isn't just the visible part of my output it's also the invisible part of my labor which is more about yeah about things like that like decisions that I make or when I decide to like you know call in someone for something and say hey just wanted to pass on this feedback to you that you know and like that's that's the stuff you don't see that happens behind the scenes I guess yeah totally all part of anti-racism it's it's fighting the institutional racism as well as like the art that um, is the output. Um, thank you so much for that um, really interesting um, answer. I am going to move to a bit of a more broad question, um, mm. which should sort of allow you to be flexible um, to pick things that maybe you're passionate or interested in. But what are some of the challenges that you faced in uh, the Australian arts landscape? And what are some changes that you'd like to see? <laughs> wow, what a big, big question. question. Yeah. Um, well, firstly, I think... I feel like this year in particular, it's really forced a lot of us to confront maybe some of these niggling doubts that we've had for a long time working in this industry about its sort of elitism, its whiteness, its sexism, its exploitation. I think, I don't know, I feel like, I feel this kind of, I talk to a lot of my peers about this. We are so tired, but cautiously optimistic that maybe now you know, shit has truly hit the fan um, <laughs> that, I don't know, maybe change is coming. I'm not sure. But without kind of maybe going to that, I think the challenges in this industry, they're all interconnected. It's really about who has access to these spaces and who is given a platform to share their voice. And, you know, I'm very institutionalized, actually. Like I studied art history you know, at age 18, did a master's overseas. I've worked in a lot of different institutions in Sydney, uh, Melbourne, overseas, etc. Like, if you look at my CV, it's just like a typical. So I have to also acknowledge that I'm very much entrenched within these very kind of, I guess, values in these systems as well. But I guess the, the things that I've kind of grappled with throughout my career, it's tricky because when you walk through the world as a woman of colour and you experience certain things you don't know whether it's you whether it's racism or whether it's sexism or whether it's something else and over time experiences start to connect in my head like being passed over for opportunities for for a man who's less qualified than me or you know sitting in the audience of a panel that's about feminism and all the speakers are white you know these things are small things really but then over time I guess they kind of make a picture of what kind of what kind of industry this is. And I think in Australia, um, we have so much more work to do in terms of really building genuine relationships with both First Nations people and also people of colour. And that is also like a bigger conversation as well to be had. So these are kind of ongoing things. And then the other issue is also, of course, to do with exploitation and burnout and mental health. 
but they're all interconnected, which is why I said earlier, basic universal income might be a solution to a lot of these. <laughs> because it's, it's really about access, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I just went off on a wild tangent there. But. No, um, lots of interesting things to think about there. Um, thank you so much for your response. And I guess just as a last very fun question, mm-hmm. Sophia, are there any books that you've been reading recently? Um, any fun things that have caught your attention? I've actually become obsessed with this book that I recently read by um, academic called Silva Federici called Witches, Witch Hunting and Women. Have you heard oh of gosh. it? Gosh, Yeah, sitting in my bookshelf and it's oh! the next one that I want to read. It's so um, good. Yeah, can... it's, a, it's a thin one, isn't it? Yeah, I finished it in one day. You can definitely yeah. get through it really quick. I'd never heard about this author's work before, but I was actually oh, recently... she's great. I actually came to her book because my friend, you know, we're in Melbourne lockdown, so we can't really see anybody. And my friend and I, we sent each other a book in the post recently. So she sent me that oh, one and then I sent her one one that was a memoir by Ariel Gore called something about witches as well. So we kind of like a witch. Oh, book. good. Witch um, Yeah. I so, love it. Yeah. Sylvia Federici, she's like this old school Italian feminist and socialist. She's really radical. Um, yeah. She has like really amazing things to say about women and unpaid labor. But yeah, yeah. what does this book cover? Well, I think it's, it's kind of like a collection of, of different essays that she's written. And even though she's academic and she writes some of them quite like academically, I found them really accessible and really easy to read. And she writes... And because it's a collection of essays, it's on different things. So one of the essays was about the idea of the gossip and like the kind of history of that word and what that means. But I think the thing that really changed my thinking in her book was the connection between capitalism or like the the kind of beginnings of capitalism with witch hunting. Just thinking about how like, yeah, basically it just kind of blew my mind in terms of all these things being connected and now knowing me and turning anything I get obsessed into into a project you know (laughs) like what's next but um I think this book really was quite eye-opening in terms of thinking about the kind of continuing history of how women are I guess effectively witch hunted for, for for various reasons just because of the fact that society wants or doesn't want something from them. So, I mean, that is an kind of ongoing kind of drew on that historical context and knowledge and then also applied it kind of more contemporary things and thinking. And she also made me rethink about some of these things about like, for example, I visited Salem as a tourist, like in the US, you know, at the time I was so excited to go and like get into the witchy paraphernalia and all of that. And then in the book, she's talking about how like, you know, how problematic it is that we are consuming these objects these like pop objects I guess but really like so many people died you know because of the witch hunts and that really made me kind of rethink a little bit because I feel like there is a kind of easy pop feminism sensibility you know to witchcraft or thinking about witchcraft and this book kind of really pushed me past that point into thinking about it really critically and thinking about these connections I hadn't made before within a book that's like this small like it's incredible I am raving about it because it's great and you should definitely read it and I'm excited to hear what you think yes <laughs> it's next it. on my list I'm so excited to read it and such a coincidence that I actually did have it on my list honestly thank you so much um, for sharing uh, your thoughts your knowledge um, your ideas uh, your research um, with our listeners um, I know that our conversation today has given me a lot to reflect on, um, both in in my work uh, with Nava or in the art sector generally, and I guess more broadly in my life. Um, so thank you, Sophia, so much um, for your time. Yeah. And yeah.
pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Head to our website visualarts.net.au for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations.